Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you today? I'm well, Paul. I'm very well. Um, I good. Ha- you sound yeah. <laughs> I, I've just I've just uh, finished uh, before starting to record this. A little insight for the listeners. I've just finished apologising for the fact that yet again I've barely watched any films this week, but uh, I've got more than enough enthusiasm to make up for my lack of actual, um, you know, valid contribution to a show that is ostensibly about reviewing films that we have watched recently. Um, does this mean you're gonna? It's gonna be a repeat of last week. You just put me on the spot if I don't like it. It is, yeah. I'm gonna get very sort of. I'm gonna have very vehement, strong opinions about the few things that I have watched, uh, maybe to your detriment. But like before that, what I said and agreed uh, as penance that I would do is sort of do a more interview style for the uh, what we've been watching section of the show, so that I get to ask the questions and you can answer them with with you know having actually experienced a bit of cinema lately. Um, before that, man, how about you? How are you doing? I'm very well, sir. I'm very well. I've watched quite a bit this week, actually, uh, which is which is quite nice. So I'm I'm rocketing. I'm trying, basically, playing catch up towards my 365 total, and I'm not far off now. I think I'm about 15 films off pace. So I'm getting there, Pete. I want I want to end the film the year like I did last yeah. year, and I don't want that to include well, shorts. Well, yeah, so I, I've got I, some I, catching I'm up sure <laughs> Kira Knightley's in a perfume advert that you could put on Letterbox or whatever. So you'll get there. It'd be cool. Um, yeah, I mean, in in my defence, Paul, and obviously I'm joking. I know you're you're probably going to get 465 knowing you I'm not really worried but um <laughs> but yeah in, in my defense we recorded we are recording I should say closer to the previous show than usual because what we're trying to do is shift the show back to sort of a slightly earlier release in the week it's drifted a little bit towards the weekend um so we've had about four maybe five days between recordings of which I spent a good couple of them uh four and a half hours across the other side of the country visiting family so there was not really the opportunity to watch anything of substance whilst I was there. <laughs> or if there was, it would probably cause a problem. <laughs> yeah, 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 it would. It's a difficult... What are you up to, Pete? Uh, just watching a film? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, to be fair, you say that, Paul. I did take my tablet with the express intention of finding time where I could watch some movies uh, with or without my, <laughs> my wife by my side, but uh, it just didn't work out. So, yeah, coming into this section with that in mind... What have you, Paul Anderson, been watching recently? What are the films that you want to talk about today? So, firstly, uh, is the t- 2018 version or Stroke remake, and I don't think it's strictly a remake because it does a lot of, enough different. Thankfully, this is uh, Luca Guadagnino's um, Suspiria, reimagining of Suspiria. I think is a better way to describe this. This stars Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton, and Mia Goth, amongst others. Um, and yeah, it's it's one that when it was announced, I think I don't think anyone was particularly keen on the idea of a new version of Suspiria, uh, because as anyone who listens to the show on a regular basis knows, Suspiria is one of my all-time favourite films and is a very, very well, and rightly so, very, very well-regarded horror film. But then you have an interesting director such as Luca Guadagnino, who directed last year's Call Me By Your Name attached to the project. And what we get is actually something that is different enough to stand in its own right. I wouldn't say it's as successful as the original but I'm not going to do a sort of blow by broken comparison because they are different films but I think what it does what it gets right it gets very very right and what it gets right is it's got an incredible it's an incredibly atmospheric film um, there is an impending sense of dread um, that builds up throughout the whole thing which is great for a horror film um, it builds to a very very satisfying conclusion which is quite frankly a bloody mess which is no surprise to anyone who's seen the original and um, 
And yeah, I think it's overall it's a very good film. Um, Luca Guadagnino, well, mostly a good film. Luca Guadagnino's choice of color palette is a lot, a lot sparser than uh, Argento's, and I think that's almost deliberate, deliberate juxtaposition with the original. And I think the film benefits from that certainly. Um, Dakota Johnson is an actress again. She, I've not really rated her in the films that she's been in, but she's. I mean, she's. Most people will know her from the Shades of Grey trilogy, but she seems to be choosing the kind of um, Christian. Uh, Christian Stewart route of taking slightly more independent projects and trying to build a a, a more interesting CV that way. And I think for the most part, she, here, she does a good job in this. Paul, as sorry does to Mia cut you. Wasn't she also yeah, on, in uh, A Bigger Splash, the Luca Guadagnino film? She may well. Yeah, have been. I've I not think seen she that, was so, because I was um, going to say, what are your feelings on her as an actress in general? I mean, because you're, like you're saying, she's taking this circuitous route around sort of indie projects where she could be obviously doing massive things in terms of you know commercial viability, I guess. Um, and I've she's always struck me as an actress with a sort of intelligence about her and a, and, and a wherewithal without uh, about her. Having said that, I think that sometimes I've been a slightly underwhelmed with the end product of like a complete. Dakota Johnson performance but here is this the the best you've seen of her or, or better it's, I think it's one of the best performances I've seen from her I think it's it's the whole the the, the film itself isn't sort of carried by I mean there's there's a lot of talent here you've got Tilda as said Tilda Swinton's here as well uh in three roles see if you can spot her in all three roles um and Mia Goff so she's surrounded by very talented um actresses and I just I think the performance is is solid if not incredible I wouldn't say it's the highlight of the film I think the highlight of the film is the is certainly the visual style so when a film is this strong visually and that this atmospheric it almost carries not what's a bad performance but I think you see where I'm coming from like the performances aren't the most important thing in this film um in this film certainly it's, it's the visual look and i think it's yeah i think overall it's it's an effective horror film um there's a lot of what the fuck moments which is great it's got a very creepy atmosphere i think in its to its detriment there's a couple of underdeveloped plot lines um they hang the whole thing around 70s berlin and they hang the whole thing to the backdrop of the kind of the bader meinhof movement and the the raf sort of terrorist movement of the of of germany in that time and they hang a lot around that, and there's there's a lot men- there's a lot mentioned in the background of those events, and one of the characters apparently has something to do with those. But then they never really, I never, for me, I never really saw why they've done that. It, it, that seems sort of underdeveloped. And there's a couple of plot lines, without going into any more spoilers, that, that seem a little bit underdeveloped. And also, I have to say, and it, it pains me to say it, but the the finale, as effective as it is and brutal as it is, it's it's one of the great horror set pieces of the year, without a doubt. But it is a little bit let down by some really, really poor CGI, which which I didn't expect to see in a film like this, to be honest. I thought they either almost like use practical effects or don't bother. But it's it's jar- a cheap CGI in a production as otherwise lavish as this is really quite jarring. And that, that let me down. But I think it's, yeah, it's just, it's a strong horror film. It's not the best horror film of the year. That will most likely be Hereditary. Um, it's not as good as Hereditary, but it's a decent version of Suspiria in its own right. So you should definitely check it out. And and do you feel, last question on this one then, Paul, do you feel that like Guadagnino set out to make a straight up horror film? Like, is that is that the impression you got from watching it, having not seen it myself? Or do you think that, because you're mentioning like these other, maybe things that didn't work so much for you in terms of like diversions in the plot or like the backdropping the plot with a certain uh, situation, that maybe he's going for something broader, wider and further reaching than just a straight up horror film? And and to that regard, do you think it succeeds in, in sort of um, 
surpassing the limitations of, of just just being a horror movie and that's not to disparage just being a horror movie what i mean is like does he have bigger ambitions do you think here i think there's i think there's wider there's certainly wider themes in play here than just a straight up sort of scary witch movie um although that is a big part of it is that which is which is great don't get me wrong um so yeah i think i think he's got again without i'm not sure i won't spoil it because you, you kind of need to go in cold even if you've seen the original there'll still be some surprises here for you which is good um so yeah i think he's he's making a certainly a a, a more inter more thought-provoking movie than your average scary witch horror movie if that makes sense so what's next on the on the uh, agenda for today's rundown of the one contributor to the show that's got something to contribute. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is uh, Outlaw King, the latest film from director David McKenzie, who directed Starred Up and Hello High Water, unless I'm otherwise mistaken. Is this really the director? Is this really the director of this movie? Is David McKenzie? It I, is. Yes. I've dropped the ball then because this was one where we talked about doing it as a feature, and I've kind of undenied and thought it felt a bit like homework, and so haven't seen it. <laughs> so it didn't. Yeah. And, and I and I really like David McKenzie's movies, but um, how good slash not so great is it in the end? Because I thought it was. I thought it was fine would be <laughs> damning praise there uh, no I said so to starring here you've got Chris Pine and the I said the ever watchable Florence Pugh who are both great in this um, Chris Pine's Scottish accent is admirable I have to say he does a pretty good job especially comparative it's normally an accent that gets butchered by American and Hollywood production so it doesn't in this um, so yes yeah, so historical epics centered around epic epic that's not even a word historical epic Set around uh, Robert the Bruce and his becoming essentially the, the King of Scotland, um, which very much annoys the British King of the time. I think was Edward, if I remember rightly. Um, and yeah, the Scottish King Chris Pine's Robert the Bruce leads the leads Scotland in open rebellion to basically reclaim the country from the the vile English at the time. Um, so yeah, it's um yeah that's so that's that's the setting of it. Um, yeah, I think overall it's it's decent, but not up there with his uh, other films. Um, uh, people may be aware who followed the publicity on this, not about Chris Pine's penis, although that is in the film very briefly and in shadow. You don't really see it, so don't get excited about that because you don't really see it at all. Um, yeah, the other people, other people who have followed the film will have noticed that this is a much shorter version than was originally released at film festivals. I think he cut about David McKenzie cut about twenty. 25 minutes of the film um, because people had some issues with the pacing at film festivals so he cut a, a, a large a large chunk of it out um, to be honest I would quite like to have seen the full cut of the film because this this version which runs at 2 hours 15 I think just at times feels a little bit truncated and it feels like there's big bits missing the, the narrative seems to take it's well enough edited together don't get me wrong uh, the problem isn't the editing but just the narrative feels like it just takes big leaps to and gets to certain events too quickly and I'd have rather seen a, a more complete longer film whether that would have been a better film or not I don't know I haven't seen it but I would rather see the director's original vision rather than a cut down version um, so there's there's some slight problems there it's it's still a solid. It's, as I said, it's still a solid, enjoyable film. The battle scenes are absolutely incredible. Um, I'd like to kind of like to the opportunity to see this one at the cinema. I have to say, the final battle is is nothing short of superb and one of the best battle scenes I've seen for quite some time. I have to say, it's very very visceral and um, yeah, the film is absolutely savage in places. And David McKenzie is a director who knows how to use violence sparingly and use it very very well. So yeah, it's got some strengths. It's not his. As I said it's not his best film by a long shot, but it's still. Uh, it's I think it's still worth your time. So just about worth a watch. 
<laughs> just about worth a watch is what's going on the yeah. poster. Um, and then <laughs> yeah. you've got, I think from, from what you said pre-show, you've got at least one more, right? I have, yes. This is another, uh, there seems to be a theme here as well. We didn't even tell people what the show was about today, but there seems to be a theme here, which is Netflix films this week. Um, we'll we'll so, get to it in yes. due course, Paul. Get through this section and then I'll make a big song and dance about that. <laughs> uh, this is The Land of Steady Habits, um, directed by a director who seems to be widely regarded, but I've not seen any of her films before this one. This is Nicole Holofcener. Holofcener, that's it. Nicole Holofcener, I think, is how is how I'm going to butcher her name. So apologies if you are listening. Nikki H. Um, you can call this... her Nikki H, Paul. It'll be easier. Nikki H, fine. Um, so this stars Ben Mendelsohn um, as a character called Anders, um, who is... Well, describes himself as a retired as a retired businessman. Essentially, he's worked. He's definitely worked a um, big job in the city, um, and has retired because he's got bored of it and basically doesn't like what what that job is, what it does to other people. It's kind of seen the light. Really, you could describe this as a midlife crisis um, if you were that if you were that judgmental of the character, and that's kind of what's insinuated here. So he quits this job, um, leaves his wife. Uh, and basically, the the film just kind of follows him picking up the pieces. It's very much a character-driven piece um, about him kind of picking up the pieces of his life and his friendships with the people that he used to work with and how people have judged him for what he's done and the fact he's got no money now and he's living in a smaller house and this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it's, um, it's a very, very effective, for the most part, very understated film. Um, and it just reinforces Ben Mendelsohn really is, for me, one of my favourite actors working at the moment. Have you started watching this, Pete? Have you, you've not seen this? No, no? I've seen about half of it. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've started a new a new hobby, which is watching half of a film and then running out of time and not watching the rest of it. But yeah, it means that when I come to finish this and the new Gus Van Zant uh, and at least one other, it my my uh, total on Letterbox is going to rocket up to you know who knows now we could be uh, over a hundred. <laughs> I'm not even sure. But uh, yeah, no, I haven't finished the movie, so I can't. Re- I don't really want to comment on it too much, considering that no, that I haven't fair. got all the way through. No, I mean for me, for me, it's a, it's a. I really, really liked it um, a lot. In fairness, uh, and I think it's a it's a hidden gem on Netflix. If you are looking through for stuff to watch on Netflix and you're not sure what to watch, find this. Ben Mendelsohn's superb as ever. Um, Eddie Falco's great in this. She's always an actress that I think should be much more famous than she is. Um, and yeah, I just I really enjoyed it. I think it's tightly written. It's got a nice. It's got a positive message without being uh, schmaltzy or preachy. Um, and yeah, I'd really, really, really enjoyed it. So yeah, check it out. So that is the land of steady habits. So you mentioned there, Paul Apley, that that was a hidden gem on Netflix. And that brings us to the fact that this week's show, as you mentioned, has got a particular theme as we usually try to sort of um, push on each episode of the of the podcast. This week, though, what we're going for is a review, feature review of The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the new Coen Brothers movie that's exclusive to the Netflix platform. And we thought to tie into that review that's going to come up right after the jump, we're going to do our top five this week on Netflix original movies. So this doesn't mean all Netflix original productions. We're not including miniseries or TV series or other content that's produced for the platform. We're purely focused on movies that um, are under the umbrella of Netflix originals. In certain um, cases, it might be that those films were released 
exclusively in the UK on Netflix. And that falls within the remit of our top five because we're a UK-based podcast. It makes sense to us. Other than that, they're all going to be those productions that were funded or at least uh, in major part funded and produced by the people at Netflix. We don't have any bias towards this this particular platform. We're not doing this as a way of sort of garnering um, uh, some sponsorship opportunity or cross-promotion <laughs> or anything like that. It's purely the fact that most people who have a streaming service have the Netflix streaming service. Maybe another time we'll do an Amazon Prime one. Maybe we'll do a movie one. Maybe we'll do, you know, other platforms that we've used and talked about on the show. But for de- for today's show, we wanted to focus on Buster Scruggs, the Coen Brothers movie, first of all, and then Netflix originals and our thoughts on which ones are the best ones. After that, as if that wasn't going to fill your tummy with enough delicious film information, we're going to bring on dessert. That's going to be Act 3. In Act 3, we'll look ahead to Netflix original movies that are coming in the future that, as a listener to this show, we think you're going to be interested in. So, without further ado, we're going to jump to a break and we're going to come back with a review of our feature review for this week, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Right, and back we are. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Pete, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is the latest uh, output from the, um, you might have heard of them, the Coen brothers. Um, Fairly well established, and I'd say reasonably well respected as far as filmmakers go. Um, And this is is a slight departure from them, and I think, well, well, not so much a departure from them, because they do do very different things at all all possible junctures. But this is an anthology movie kind of based around different stories from the Wild West. Would that be a fair way to describe it, Pete? Yeah, that's right. It's a six-part anthology set in the old west that shifts from story to story with these um intersectional sort of leafing uh, or turning the leaves of a page of a book and each one is a new uh, short story and then the short story plays out as a live action uh, piece of work they vary tonally and they also very very like temporally in the sense that some of the pieces of this six-part jigsaw are very, very tiny. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs being the first of those runs something around 10 minutes, I think. Um, And they can vary in size up to around, I'm going to guess, 40 minutes for the sequence that I think comes in at number five, which uh, features Zoe Kazan, amongst others. So there's a lot to dig into here because we're kind of dealing with six separate things that are part of one unified thing and reflecting on what that can tell us and what we know already about the people producing this because as Paul rightly you say I mean anybody who's who's a a film fan of sort of even limited description is going to know all about the Coen brothers going in and is going to probably have in most cases quite high expectations right um the first as i said uh, just a moment ago the first section opens uh, the ballad of buster scruggs with tim blake nelson playing a crooning cowboy who specializes in like I- immaculately dueling um other individuals to their very very uh hasten demise and um before we talk any more or step any further onto the plains of the old west let's just hear a little clip Song never fails to ease my mind out here in the west where the distances are great and the scenery monotonous. Additionally, my pleasing baritone seems to inspirit old Dan here and keep him in good heart during the day's measure of hoof clops. Ain't that right, Dan? (laughs) Maybe some of y'all have heard of me. Buster Scruggs, known to some as the San Saba Songbird. 
I got other handles, nicknames, appellations, and cognomens, but this one here, I don't consider to be even halfway earned. Misanthrope? I don't hate my fellow man, even when he's tiresome and surly and tries to cheat at poker. I figure that's just the human material, and him that finds in it cause for anger and dismay is just a fool for expecting better. Ain't that right, Dan? So that clip, we're going to say that that clip is from, um, well, from I would imagine from Tim Blake Nelson's words himself as Buster Scruggs. Um, so yeah, that's the first of the. What have you got the running order in front of you of these of these um, I can, short films? I can remember because... them. I think off the top of my head. So we've got yeah Tim Blake Nelson in the first section um, as described. In the second section, we have James Franco as. Um, a guy who gets to de- deliver the the line, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, at the point at which he's going to be hanged, uh, a man next to him breaks down and starts sobbing, and he simply says, "Is it your first time?" Because that's a story about a man who is very fortunate until he's very unfortunate. Then yes. <laughs> uh, the third section is this um, story full of sort of pathos about uh, a limbless man who is carried around. Uh, somewhat like a, a backpack, uh, for want of a better description, by uh, a, a sort of um, snake oil salesman played by Liam Neeson, who takes him around to tell stories through monologue to a gathered audience with a sort of literary aspiration. Um, and the whole thing sort of infused with sadness. Then we've got a fourth section, which is Tom Waits panning for gold uh, on his own in the valley. We've got a fifth section, which is Zoe Kazan, um, as I mentioned, traveling with a convoy um, and her brother to meet the man to whom she is going to be wed uh, things taking a few turns along the way and in the final section we have um, Brendan Gleeson amongst others in the back of a stagecoach having a discussion that veers into a slightly um, morbid uh, I, I don't know the, the top of the conversation is quite morbid and um, a little bit surreal um, before the thing comes into the station and reaches its conclusion. So that's like a, a whistle-stop tour through the six parts of this. You've done well there, Pete, I'll be honest. This thing. Um, <laughs> you've, done, you've done very well. Where, where should right. we start, though, man? I, I think it makes sense to kind of have a little chat about each part, you know, rather than getting too overarching to begin with, and then maybe we can sum up once we get yeah, to the end. I think that's, a, I think that's a good way of doing it, yeah. So, so first of all, yeah. Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the section, rather than this entire project, um, yeah. and, and Tim Blake Nelson here, and what we can identify fairly early on, any fans of the Coen Brothers, as the kookier side of the Coen Brothers aesthetic. Oh, for sure, uh, yeah. Yeah, so we're thinking more in terms of, like, Big Lebowski, that kind of, or Raising Arizona, that kind of... Yeah. That kind of um, vibe. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I think it's good, good comparisons. And and here, I mean, yeah, what did you think? I've, I've been talking too much. What did you think of this section? Uh, this is one of my favourite sections, I have to say. It was, uh, I think Tim Blake Nelson is an actor I've always quite liked, but I don't think he's ever kind of broken through to more, to, to sort of major roles. And I think when he's used very, very well, when he's used well, he is very, very good. Um, and yeah, this is... Um, yeah, this is, very, I'd say, very lightweight, but a lot of fun. Um, very, very clever, I think, in the way that it's done. So Tim Blake Nelson, as you say, plays this um, incredibly effective pistol duelist who also then uh, manages to, to, to shoot people and then um, manages to gather like a whole town or a whole saloon in song about it. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, and then someone comes along who may or may not be better at that exact skill set than him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's very, very charming. It's very, very funny. I'd quite like to see a whole film about the character of Buster Scruggs, to be honest, yeah. and where he's come uh, from. Um, 
And we said off mic, I mean, we were talking, obviously, we've been talking off mic about this film, having both seen it very recently, only released on the Netflix platform on November 9th. So, you you know, very recent past um, that there are a number of the sections here which feel like they would be apt for expansion into features. And with something like Netflix, you know, as a platform and many others that are available, it feels like we're living in a time where that's more possible than ever. It's just whether the Coen brothers have the will and i mean i haven't heard anything to the fact that they they intend to expand any of this material but i think you're right i think that this character is so um sort of instantly lovable even though what he is doing is essentially just (laughs) murdering a succession of people in in elaborate ways and like particularly the the sequence in the saloon where he uses a plank from a table in his murdering um i very much enjoyed because he's unarmed in that part so he has to find a way to kill someone without actually having his weapon drawn at the time um yeah wonderful and so yeah and then and then like with all the silliness with the coen brothers you know what you're going to get is these tremendous um, pieces of framing like when he steps out of the saloon and he has this tete-a-tete with the the new crooner in town it's all in sort of classic western framing where you've got a guy silhouetted on the horizon and everything is just so and you're caught in that sort of uncanny valley that the Coen brothers often find themselves in between an absolutely accurate representation of something from a bygone era and then Mm. also a sort of Cohen world artificiality where it never feels quite right but like in a well there's always a good been way. for years there's been a rumor of like a, a Cohen shared universe isn't there I think because because there's always that as you say that's like uncanny feel to all the films although they do look realistic and that they are shot in a realistic way yeah and I just think they the Coens uh, have mastered what I would describe as the craft of beautiful silliness mm. um <laughs> and this this yeah this um in fact pretty much all of these all of these are incredibly shot as you'd expect from the Coens but yeah that's one of my highlights I think would be the would be the opening act so it doesn't outstay its welcome either it's very brief so but, yeah again yeah. relatively brief I think is the second section as I mentioned we're James Franco which, which is near Al Gondes I think it's called right okay yeah which involves uh, Franco's character getting into a spot of bother that finds him um, on horseback uh, oh yes of course because it's all about him trying to carry out a robbery and then the robbery yeah. going awry because the person who was going to be robbed was prepared for this uh, eventuality and had taken steps to ensure that they were somewhat protected <laughs> which then lands Franco in in quite a a lot of bother um, yeah with his life in in danger and he is in sort of inadvertently rescued which is a sequence I really enjoyed like just the the very idea that that by accident his life is is spared Um, this section though I would say is as much as I'm I'm warming more and more as the years and projects go by, I'm warming to James Franco. Um, and there was a bit in here when he's left alone on horseback with a noose around his neck and he's in the hot sun and it looks like there's no hope for rescue where you thought, oh, this reminds me of 127 hours. And actually, I quite like <laughs> that movie. And, you know, maybe I, I have more affection for him than I would usually acknowledge. But um, I would say having said all of that, it's maybe one of the lesser sections of the six. Would you agree? I c- yeah, I completely agree. It's, it, it looks it looks beautiful. I will hasten to add it's one of it's one of the ones I kind of sat up and I was just like, damn, this looks amazing. Um, but yeah, it just 
yeah, it didn't really engage me, to be honest. I didn't really have much sympathy for the character and it just, it felt slight in comparison to some of the others. And I think if you're going to do, as we've talked about time and time again about short films, if you're going to make something this running time, it needs to grab you pretty damn quickly uh, if it's going to get your attention. Otherwise, it can just feel a bit slight in comparison. It, it has... I think in comparison to the, to the quality of some of the other shorts here, yeah, it didn't grab me. It, it had, a, for me anyway, a, a, a sort of sense of that wry borderline smugness that you get in something like oh brother where art thou which is like one of the cohen films that i don't go for particularly mm. um and i've seen it i think twice and, and both times sort of felt the same way um yeah it's it's a decent performance it's a uh, uh there are a couple of laughs a couple of funny moments and, and a very well staged accidental rescue but yeah maybe a little bit minor in this collection um number three then if i'm not mistaken is yes liam neeson carrying around a man who has no arms and no legs and um is going to earn the duo money by performing so this is uh this is meal ticket okay thank you yeah i'm, I'm terrible on the titles of the sections here i've got the list in front of me don't oh, cool. worry. um yeah so he's going to perform this this very meaningful monologue which is it sort of goes from the um, personal to the public or the private to the public it builds an idea about his lack of arms and legs and lack of sort of um, perceived personhood and respect within a society and then branches out because we get to see him tell the story over and over again so we're hearing like different sections of it and it builds up the overall um, sum of what it is that he wants to say and it builds into this thing all about America and about um, the uh, the the ec maybe exploitation of the people living within a country and how that shouldn't be allowed to pass and like it's this yeah incredibly meaningful piece of work delivered by a man who's in a terribly difficult situation i mean at one point when neeson's character goes to uh visit a, a brothel he just simply <laughs> yeah. takes the other man i mean we're in we're in full-on black comedy territory yeah, here, he, like, he with, takes the other man who, who can't sort of obviously move himself around the room and just turns him around so that he can see to the the woman that's in the room with him at the time and then when asked whether you know by the she says something like um oh would your friend like to get some action too or something he's like oh no no i don't think so and she says hey, did he ever and he says well yeah he did once and we don't learn anything else about that and they just carry on trudging on trudging on and as they go on this journey you can see that what's happening is they're economically it's getting less and less viable to do this show because the seasons changed and it's cold and the weather is particularly unforgiving when you're in the old west uh for those of us playing red dead redemption at the moment which is a lot of people you'll know that the conditions have a big impact on your quality of bring life warm right? clothes. yeah bring warm bring, clothes put warm clothes on your horse mate but yeah. um yeah so things are getting from sort of bad to fairly dire and it's at that point that uh another traveling act um bumps into the pair and neeson sort of gets an idea about where his future might lie uh and, and i can't say really more than that plot wise because it will spoil it albeit this is a, a short film essentially um paul what did you make of this part uh, this one i think i enjoyed more than the second one it took me a while to warm to this one though because i had really had no idea where it was going and i kind of thought i'm not i'm not sure what this is to start with um, and then, as I said, it, it builds to the end. And when you kind of you get the scene that you talked about in the brothel, and when you you get to the point where you realise this is this is black comedy, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm more on board with this now. But it took a while for me to warm to this one. Uh, and the ending is is great, uh, absolutely superb end to this section. And as I said, without spoiling it, um, when Liam Neeson realises he needs a new act to uh, fund his fund his lifestyle, the new act is um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty dark. 
Um, but no, this yeah, not not my not not my favourite. I think it probably could. I don't think it needed to be as long as it was. I think it probably could have been a little bit shorter this one, um, and still had the same impact. But yeah, once you once you click what's going on, and once you click that is darkly comic and not just plain mean, because that's what initially what it seems like to start with. Um, yeah, there is there's a lot to like here, and the end especially. I think any anything that ends on this note is uh, should be applauded did, in my book. Did it strike you like it did me, Paul? That this is another one though. Shot this one's shot in black and white. It's the only sequence I think in black and white where. Um, I would absolutely gobble up a Liam Neeson in the Old West traveling around two-hour movie made by the Coen brothers in, entirely in black and white. He just looked fantastic in the costume and in this particular well, think, uh, palette, being that it is like monochrome. It looked it looked just just wonderful, this sequence, I thought. Well, yeah, I would, I would quite like that. And I'd like to see Liam Neeson actually acting again as well, because I think I'd like to see Liam Neeson in the Old West where his daughter gets kidnapped and he has to use his specific skill set to go and get her back. <laughs> well, that, well, that would basically be what would happen in Red Dead Redemption, though, wouldn't it? It'd be like, yeah. you got to go over there, your daughter got kidnapped and you got to kill everyone with your your focus site or whatever um yeah okay yeah. so talking of things that look beautiful what we get here is a shift from the monochrome of this section into absolutely glorious technicolor for the next section which is all lush valleys and green grass and babbling brooks and this is tom waits all alone tom waits is in this this is the section i was most excited about yeah. tom waits he, he's this. all alone he's looking <laughs> uh, grizzled and he is attempting to find even a flake a speck a tiny little dot of gold somewhere in the valley which will then give him a hint as to where a pocket might be that becomes his the entirety of his world and his pursuit is this pocket of gold for obvious reasons because this is absolute make or break i mean he's an aging man and this could set him up for the rest of his days if he can just find the right spot in which to dig um paul first of all my word this section looked so good uh, you should have seen it on my telly. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched it on my phone. No, I, I, I yeah. didn't. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, no, it just, yeah, it looks, it just looks, oh, it's just straight away it opens up and I was just like, <sighs> you can't see my face, listeners. I don't know why I did that. Pete's on my face. It wasn't that pretty, to be honest. But um, yeah, just incredible. Like almost, even, right, we talked about the fact this is a Netflix film, so you're not going to get, unlikely you've got to see this at the cinema unless you saw it at probably London Film Festival, I think. Um, but yeah, it just looks staggering. Even on a TV, it looks staggering. Like it just immediately takes you. The use of colour here just takes your breath away. The the moment it opens, it looks incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's colour, yeah, and so it's agreed. like, and it's what it's alive with wildlife because it seems to me a deliberate choice in terms of the the staging of the sections here that you go from the absolute bleakness of snow swept Liam Neeson in black and white making you know this this horrible decision towards the end of that piece and then you get into this one where it's just like the the world albeit the same world is is almost completely different I mean that Again, this isn't the Red Dead Redemption episode, but there's obvious crossover. At the beginning <laughs> of Red Dead Redemption, it doesn't spoil anything to say that you start off in a snow, snowy hillside uh, environment. And when you realise why they did that in the game, it's, it's just an inspired decision. Because the first time that you see lush grass and wildlife and treetops is all the more staggering because you've been confined in this claustrophobic, yeah. like blizzard swept uh, area. So the same kind of thing happens here at the midpoint of this project. And, and I really, really appreciated that. And then I think it's a great performance. I think it's an interesting little uh, yarn. And I think it's 
ripe for, in this case, or perfectly, um, a perfectly formed short film, really, this sequence. Uh, yeah, this is absolutely my favourite, hands down my favourite section of the um, of the whole thing. Um, I've always been a fan of Tom Waits and I think his performance is great. He's perfectly suited to playing like a, a crazy old uh, crazy old prospector. Um, he basically is a crazy old prospector and now he's playing one. So um, yeah, so he's, he's incredible in this role. He's, he, adds, he adds a sense of charm to it um, that really, really works. Uh, there's a twist in the tale towards the end as well because a certain thing happens. I was like, oh no, you fucking don't end it there. I'm not having that and then something happens you know like, okay it brings it back for you so yeah i would say yeah pretty much the perfectly constructed short film um and the highlight of the highlight of the whole thing for me for sure so then we've got still two sections remaining number five is like i said in my memory of watching this yesterday actually so it's very close so that was all gold canyon number three if i didn't mention right that. um yeah then we've got so what's the four, what's sorry. the title for part five paul so this is the the gal who got rattled is the title for part number five. Right, I, no that that makes sense because when I read it, it flashed on screen and I read it as the girl that got bottled, and I just didn't understand what that could refer to. So that's a night out in Basingstoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, may, maybe so. The Coens can deal with that next. Yeah. Um, so yeah, here here we've got Zoe Kazan, uh, the partner of Paul Dano, because you talked about her recently with regards to Wildlife, right? Yeah, because she co-wrote uh, Wildlife with Paul that's Dano. That's right. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And. So, yes, uh, and she was in uh, Ruby Sparks. I think I, I shoehorned in last week yep. that she was in Ruby Sparks with Paul Dano. But um, here, he's not involved, and she is travelling with her brother to uh, another town in which she's going to be wed, she thinks, to a guy that she's never... Oregon, I think. That's it? right, Oregon. yeah, that's yes. right. Uh, yeah. She's going to be met to uh, wed to a guy that she's never met before who is a uh, apparent business partner of her brother, but her brother seems to be vaguely um, incompetent and not quite clear on all the details of either his business or her, you know, impending nuptials. And uh, they set off on this co- with this convoy of wagons across the plains to reach their final destination and um with them is a little dog called oh remind me uh president president pierce, pierce. that's right yeah president president pierce, pierce yes. who looks like a i don't know what kind of dog is that paul are you a dog breed expert a cute dog it's a cute dog that's right it's from the cute dog breed and um <laughs> the reason to mention that dog is that the dog becomes a sort of significant part of the plot when the health of the brother deteriorates and Zoe Kazan's character needs to make another plan because what seemed to be her prospects for the future have suddenly evaporated. Um, step in another member of the convoy who is keen on her as a partner and keen on giving her safe passage to her destination and making sure that she's provided for. Um this section, you've just said that the prospecting section was your favourite. I, I might agree with you. And if there was a close con- second place or, or runner up, I think it would be this one. I really enjoyed this section of the film. And again, I kind of wish that this was able to be expanded into a feature film because I think Zoe Kazan was was really great in the role. And I think that it it immersed me in a way that, that I, like I've seen feature length Western or Western styled movies that haven't, had me invested in the plot as much as this did mm. did it work for you also yeah i really this yeah this i said this is i would say probably my second or probably tied with the first one the ballad of buster scruggs um but yeah i really like this um zoe kazan uh she doesn't do a lot of work but she kind of almost plays a type 
um, in a lot of films she's in, and she doesn't here, which I thought was quite nice. And I think this is the best I've seen her in in a while. Well, certainly, the, it's a different performance from her, one I wouldn't normally expect, and that's not that's not a bad thing because I think you're right; she's she's very good in this. And yeah, I just I like I like the twists and turns and, and where it goes. You don't re- you don't really see where this is going, to be honest, um, which is quite nice. Again, it looks incredible. Like the shots of uh, the shots of the wagon train, like driving through the old west, are just incredible, and it just makes you think. Just really makes you think about the, like what a monumental what a monumental journey it must have been, and the, the kind of it really gives you an impression of how vast the American West actually was, Absolutely. which is great. Um, so that that works really really well, and yeah, just the characters are all endearing, and I think it's just very well written. And again, yeah, it's it's interesting that we'll, we'll get to the length of some of them in a minute, but yeah, it's interesting that this is by far the longest as well. Um, but I think it's it's worth the extra time they invest into it, and yeah, I think a, I think yeah, a feature would work. Yeah, and, and it almost characters. it almost had to be this long, didn't it, Paul? Because I mean, to really get a sense, like you're saying, of of the vastness of the planes and like how long it takes to get from A to B. If this was in and out in sort of ten minutes, you wouldn't get that sense like you do here with sticking around with the characters for a longer amount of time. Also, I, I guess uh, something that stood out for me, and maybe across a number of the films here, is like this sense that uh, turns is is played for black comedic like laughs and at other times is much more serious but this sense that in this period of american history people were always like a day away from like great success potentially in the case of you know being that one guy who manages to find gold or like a bullet in the head like the way that people are absolutely living on the edge so that making plans is almost a fool's errand because everything can change in an instant because there's everything set against you there's the environment there's people who are after what you have there are people who are looking to double cross you in terms of your relationships like it just came across albeit with the caveat that yes a lot of it is quite funny and just entertaining and nice to look at also like as a real reminder of man like we are we are very much like pampered little sissies these days aren't we because like to survive in these kinds of conditions incredible really yeah i think it's great it's one yeah one of the highlights for sure um, closing us out what what's we, the last section closing this out is, is it's called the mortal remains right and so yeah a brief summary i already gave basically we're traveling along we're in a station wagon there are people in the back uh one of which is uh brendan gleason they are having a conversation about mortality that conversation is then um sort of dominated by a french man who has a sort of very liberal uh, almost cliched french view of uh love and the flexibility of that and then um we get into territory of of, of talking about the actual intent of one of the people, um, actually two of the people, I think, on the carriage and how that might be, might have previously been unknown to the other people. And it's got a sort of sense of being, yeah, there's like limited storytelling, we're all in one one space, but also a bit like, um, I don't know, like, a, like a, a tiny, tiny section of like a Black Mirror or Twilight Zone or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, it, 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 yeah, because the rider with the rider that won't stop essentially, yeah. no matter how much you tell him. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's some supernatural in, hints in this. We yeah, say? and and I've I've got to say, of all of the sections, I feel that this one worked least for me. I think that it it was quite s- relatively smartly written, but it felt almost like a like a piece of theatre that um it didn't necessarily translate into something particularly meaty um in the the runtime that it had which was relatively brief it was again like 15 minutes i, I 
completely agree. Um, I didn't really, I struggled to engage with this, I have to say. Again, like the writing's very clever, but there's so, just something about this whole segment just left me a little bit cold, to be honest. I didn't I didn't fully engage with it. Maybe it's by the fact it's, maybe it's, it's if its placement had been better and not followed on from the long, maybe if it hadn't followed on from the longest of the segments, so it was still kind of reeling from the, the reeling from the end of the, the previous, the, which was the longest one, wasn't it, from the previous one? Yeah. Um, with Zoe Kazan in, so maybe I was reeling from that, and I'd kind of wound down. And I think, I think with the length of that, the, the previous section, I was almost expecting that to be the end. Um, I'd almost forgotten there was a number six coming. So maybe it's the position of it. I don't know, but it, it did leave me quite cold, and I didn't fully engage with this one. I yeah. have to say, I think the writing's good. It's very clever. The ending's okay, but feels a bit at juxtaposition with with what's gone on in the um, what's with the conversation that I overheard that you hear in the in the carriage. So yeah, maybe if it had been placed differently, I might have enjoyed it more. But this one left me of the, all of them. This was probably my least favorite, I think, and left me the cold. Yeah, and we've gone from like exteriors and like vast exteriors to an in- interior, and it almost feels like now we're getting because it is this sort of meta narrative on storytelling um, that the, the the way that the piece is written and and it feels uh again i'm a i'm a real big proponent of of the coen brothers but there is an area that they can veer into which feels a little bit smug and i think that the way that this was written felt to me a little bit smug smug and self-indulgent in places a little bit so yeah and and like you say coming at the end of the thing it just felt like now i'm trapped with the smugness in this you know carriage for the last (laughs) section trapped in a carriage of smug Uh, and that's and that's a shame because there's there's a lot to recommend the ballad of buster scruggs and, and like uh, yeah, anyone who is even a little bit into the Coen Brothers, like for sure, check this out because it's it's well worth it. It's just that that unevenness sometimes like is it is like a little wobble and it sort of throws you off slightly, perhaps. But overall, Paul, because we're going massively long on this review, um, any sort of further things that we've missed out or final thoughts to to overarchingly sum this thing up, I guess. I think the only the only thing that I find a little bit jarring about the whole thing is is the the wildly disparate lengths of all the different shorts. Um, I mean that it's yeah. There's there's some yeah. You kind of there's some basically there's some I would have like I'd like to have seen more on Buster Scruggs for example rather than the what eight to ten minutes that we got. Or that's what it felt like. So I'd like to see more of some. And not necessarily, not necessarily less of others, but maybe more of others as well. So that was that was a, a bit bizarre. I thought is the fact that they, um, as you say, that the, they jumped all over the place in terms of running time. Any thoughts on that, Pete? Or did you did that bother you? As yeah, such? I mean, I don't think it would bother them um, because I think they've intended no. it to be this sort of raggedy collection of you know yarns from from a period of time that that they have a lot of love for. Both, well, I, I would say primarily cinematically, but like, yeah, I agree with you, man. Like, I think that. A certain couple that we've mentioned could be expanded. They'd be great. I think that a couple could probably be cut, um, and I wouldn't lose too much sleep over that. Um, so all in all, it it soars for me to like a kind of nine out of ten at times, and then it sort of uh, swoops down to something more like a six, and probably ends up settling. Not that I'm scoring the film, but just to illustrate the point, um, yeah, I yeah, think settles yeah. somewhere around for me anyway. Settles around somewhere like an eight or a four, four out of five, or, or something like that. Yeah, I think it, yeah, I'd say settles similar, similar for me. Maybe a little less in places, but yeah, it kind of yeah, it's it's an, it's un, it's uneven, but even uh, it's a minor work for the, some of its minor work for the Cohen but even minor work for the Coens is a lot better than most filmmakers can ever dream right. of producing. And, and, and it is the um, kind of moment, Paul, where, so. where we as as consumers, um, I, as much as I hate to, to, ban, you know, to brand us that way, but as consumers of 
content, Paul, uh, should be actually uh, taking a moment to take stock and just think like, well, there was a point at which Netflix in the UK when it was launched back in 2012 was filled to the brim with a great deal of dross that we would not be interested in watching whatsoever and then a lot of stuff that had been at the cinema two years previous and was eventually trotted out and now we've got a situation for better or worse and that's a conversation maybe for another time but a situation where the platform is putting out two hours plus of original Coen Brothers material um, that we get to enjoy in the comfort of our own homes and then talk about so like wow like we've come a long way in in that and even you know, even if this is even if this is sort of yeah. minor Cohen's work or experimental Cohen's work, we, we may not have got to see this had it not right. been Netflix. Yeah, so. right. And and like, what if working on the project as well with the relative freedom and lack of constraints that you'd get from working with Netflix allows them to hone an idea that becomes the next full blown Cohen Brothers project that mm. we get to enjoy on the big screen? So as long as that balance is found, and you know, we've got to have faith that it will be, then I'm yeah. Give me you know. B- B-side Cohen Brothers every year or two. Yeah, like yeah, I will yeah, gobble it up. And, yeah. and you know, talking of which, when we come on to the third act of our show today, Paul, we'll see that like more and more directors are just piling on and getting the getting the freedom through something like Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever it is to produce the things that they want to produce. Well, yeah, because right? I get the impression. I think my understanding of how Netflix works is basically you pitch them an idea, they give you the money, you go away and make it, and then they put yeah. it on. So uh, who doesn't want to work with that without with that little constraint? Well, well their their <laughs> algorithm automatically calls your agent, right? If they think that algorithmically <laughs> you'll produce X amount of dollars, but yeah, that's all a bit depressing. But like, if the end thing is that film fans get to see great filmmakers making great stuff, then you. You know you you can't be it would be Fine. churlish yeah. to be upset about that so and again and again i'll hasten i will add to that the fact that great you get to see filmmaker stuff that you wouldn't normally get certainly in the uk or certainly in certain towns in the uk where you wouldn't get to see it full stop at the cinema so you actually get to see this day and date release with everywhere else which i also think is a great absolutely thing. and so, talking yeah. of things that you get to see that you might not otherwise have seen right after the break we're going to be back with our top five netflix original films Right, so yes, back we are. Top five original Netflix films. These are films that were commissioned by Netflix or exclusive. In one case, it's exclusive to Netflix in the UK, uh, but generally you will only find these films on Netflix. Uh, I think is the best way to describe that. Um, so, shall yeah, I start? Yeah, jump in. First? Number five, what have you got? Okay, so number five for me, I've got I Don't Feel at Home in the World Anymore, directed, which is the de- directorial debut of Macon Blair, who you may will probably know from Blue Ruin, not Blue Valentine, I keep getting yeah. mixed up. Blue Ruin, uh, Green Room, um, what else? Jeremy, basically anything that's made by Jeremy Saunier, Macon Blair will turn up in. Um, this stars Menelie Linsky, uh, Macon Blair turns up in this as well, and Elijah Wood. Um, it's just a, it's just a great. I'm going to say the word kooky, although I don't like it. I'm going to say the word kooky, f- sort of black comedy thriller that is just very, very enjoyable and a lot of fun um, and savage. Yeah, Pete, and, you've and seen like, this, and you? like, you know, throwing star into the wall. You know, smashed fingers, snakes in the fucking swamp, savage. Like, because when you say kooky, like, I, I completely get what you mean, but I automatically think of yeah. like Zoe Deschanel in like Five Hundred Days of Summer or something like that. And like, yeah, no, there's not, not that, kooky, that no. much like that Venn diagram between fans of that and fans of this might have limited crossover. So yeah. 
yeah, we should should be clear about that. And Elijah Wood is playing is playing this like completely against type here is some kind of weird badass character that's just bizarre. Uh, Menelinsky, I think, is a very underrated actress, and I think she's having a lot of fun in this role. And yeah, if if you haven't caught up with it, it's just it's a really good black kooky comedy. There we go, black kooky. That's what we've gone <laughs> <Black> for. <laughs> we'll see if it catches on. I don't think it will. <laughs> uh, that's my number five. Uh, Pete, what have so you got? So number, number five, five? For, for me might be slightly controversial because I think this is a film that's got very lukewarm reception in general. Um, it is from 2018, earlier this year. I think it's sort of early summertime release. Um, this is Calibre from director Matt Palmer. And this is one that I reviewed and we talked about, I think, on the show. Have you seen it as well, Paul? Yeah, Calibre yeah. is great didn't quite make my top five but not so far this off. could have been um equally could have been the movie super dark times which i believe also would fall under the remit of being like a netflix original production or distribution thing yes I think um, it might be, yeah. the reason that i say that is they're both very good movies watch both of them but is because they both center around something that i think i find inherently compelling which is the movie that turns on the protagonist or protagonists accidentally or semi-accidentally doing something terrible and then having to live with the consequences of what they've done. Like films that we've talked about recently, like uh, the Lenny Abramson film, What Richard Did. Like I'm talking that kind of territory where it's like, yeah, this sorry. has happened and now you've got to deal with the, the fallout. And Super Dark Times and This One Calibre are both like that. But in this case, you've got these two guys and they go off on a weekend of hunting because one of them is going to get married and the other one says, you know, you've got to live a little before you get tied down, ball and chain, all that stuff. Uh, they go into, I think it's like the Highlands of Scotland, perhaps. Um, and they're in the absolute middle of nowhere, but there is like a small local sort of American werewolf in London type local pub for local people that they walk into everyone goes quiet um, and they are um, trying to just sort of mind their business not step on any toes go out and yeah hunt a couple of deer or whatever have a good old time have a bit of a piss up in the evening but on I think the first hunting trip they go out sort of hungover from the night before and accidentally do something awful which lands them in hot water with this really tight knit community that's like a sort of powder keg that's ready to explode and um, a sort of hierarchy of hard men who are all going to step in to protect the honour of various, you know, the like two semi-attractive girls in the community or whatever um, happen to be like partner or boyfriend or daughter or whatever of a number of threatening Grant yeah. Mitchell types in the thing. But the reason this actually made the list, Paul, is <laughs> just, just because there's loads of Grant There's a, basically a load of Grant and Phil Mitchells everywhere. <laughs> Except like the Scottish equivalents of that. It's like being being yeah. Grant Mitchell. Um but but like the, the the reason this actually made the list is because I've tried with this list to think about which of the films on you know, within this area that we'd agreed upon that really made me feel something strongly. And the the thing that this film did is it gave me that like unsettled feeling in my stomach where I was genuinely finding it quite difficult to watch. And I think that that's a hallmark of like great thriller filmmaking sometimes is like you're so on edge. You're, you feel that your heartbeat is affected by what's going on, on screen, you know, and, and your, your general disposition becomes like just very edgy. I was watching it on my own. It was dark. It was the, the sort of middle of the night night I think I was away on a on a holiday and yeah it just grabbed me it just really grabbed me like like a film like uh The Ritual Paul as well that we reviewed not long ago yeah. the, the British horror film which is excellent as well and I think is also available to stream at the moment um yeah 
it just it just had me it had me in the palm of its hand and like when it plays out yeah maybe it's not entirely satisfying it might not be the best thriller i've ever seen but like of a film that's come out recently on the platform it will stay with me for a long time for the reasons i described that's my number five caliber paul what have you got number four good pick at number four i've got uh, i'm not going to talk too much about it because you can listen back to the past probably two or three shows and it's been mentioned uh, apostle from gareth evans which came out a few weeks ago on netflix uh, one of my favorite horrors of the year um and yeah check out the previous two or three episodes where we talk about that in a lot more depth uh, number four is apostle pete what's your so, number four? yeah i'll try and keep brief as well we've probably got to speed up a little bit so number four for me an easy one to put onto this list it is from let's find a year of release 2016 and this one is a documentary uh, not my last uh, a documentary uh, that was ex- exclusive to netflix and this one is called 13th from director ava duvernay um ava duvernay who was the director of course of selma and is uh well that thing with the floating cabbage as well but let's not talk about that too much what was that called Wrinkle in Time, yeah, just forget about that. Wrinkle in Time, yeah. Um, Yeah, this one co-written as well by Ava DuVernay, and it's an in-depth look at the prison system in the United States and how it reveals the nation's history of racial inequality, uh, going back to this 13th Amendment thing. Um, It's a phenomenal piece of work, a phenomenal piece of of non-fiction work, and... It is irrelevant whether it's on, you know, Netflix or Amazon or or at the cinema or wherever, because it's just one of those documentaries that people should see. And I and I'm I'm kind of loath to say I don't really like it when people say like, oh, this is an important film, what an important film. Because it sometimes feels like we don't really want to talk about the film, we just want to talk about how important it is, and maybe we brush over certain elements of the film's quality which might be lacking. In the case of Thirteenth, it's it's one of the best pieces of doc- documentary filmmaking that I've seen in the last five years. It, it's a fantastic piece of work Ava DuVernay is like a, a real force and I think both in fiction and non-fiction but I'd love to see her do more stuff like this where she can really dig into a topic that she has a passion for because 13th is fantastic that's my number four Paul what's at number three for you Beast of No Nation which is uh, might, might go down in history well it will go down in history as being the first Netflix exclusive film is my understanding of it this is directed by Carrie Fukunaga uh, and it came out in 2015 and stars Idris Elba who was definitely snubbed for an Oscar nomination for his performance as uh, an African warlord in this film, you're shaking your head. Do you not think? Do you not agree? I I, <laughs> I, I, I love the guy, Paul. You know I love the guy, but like I think they'd given him too many coffees before he he was told to uh, to to hit the the marks and and you know they shouted action on set because my word, yeah, he's up to thirteen on the the one you know zero to ten scale here. But yeah, I mean it was fun. Don't get me wrong, it was fun. I just don't share okay. your love for that. No, okay. I love the performance. I love the film. I love the director. I think it, it looks great. Um, and it was kind of like Netflix just going, here we are. We've made this beautiful looking film. We've got one of the, we've got an indie darling to direct it. Uh, and here we are. We've arrived. And I think the film, personally, I, I really like the film. Hence why it's on my top three. If you haven't seen it, check it out and let us know what you think of Idris Elba's coffee or not coffee fueled performance. <laughs> You know what I've done, Paul? I'm going to I'm going to wind this back. If we could edit that part out, we probably should. What's happened here is that probably a little bit tired today. I'm listening to you talking about Beasts of No Nation, yeah. paying attention to that. And I'm also looking at my next pick. And then you've said the name Idris Elba, and I've heard the name Jake Gyllenhaal. I've then given my opinion on Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in Okja, <laughs> which is my next pick, rather than Idris Elba's performance in Beasts of No Nation. So erase all of the stuff that you just heard me say, and as it was applied to Idris Elba, and apply it to Jake Gyllenhaal in Okja. And i sorry, because Idris Elba has done terrible things before, but one of the terrible things 
things is certainly not his performance of Beast of No Nation, which is really, really good. So I apologise to both you and the <laughs> listeners for what Apology was accepted. A, an egregious Apology error. Accepted, an egregious yes. error. <laughs> I, I don't even know. I think I was just looking at this super pig and I got a little bit fixated and then I started thinking you were talking about the same film that I was looking at. My apologies again. At what number are you on now then? You're on number three now, aren't you? Number three, Paul. Do you know is what it, it is? It's Okja from 20, 2017. <laughs> yeah, I feel almost too embarrassed to say anything about Idris it. Idris Elba was great uh, in this. Yeah, <laughs> Idris Elba is, gives this really like sombre performance in this thing. And I think what Idris Elba does in the film Okja is he really captures the gravity of, of you know, the, the suffering there and the plight of child soldiers that take pla- takes place in Okja. No, uh, Okja is the story uh, of uh, Super Pig production around the world directed by Korean uh, super director Bong Joon-ho and uh, we both loved it a great deal I think I would be surprised if it's not on your list Paul but I'm not going to spoil anything there uh, it's yeah a young girl who develops a particular bond with one of the super pigs and then sets out to uh, help to liberate it it's also somewhat of a um, anti-mass production of meat uh, tract I think or, or peace here um, I think that there are great performances not least from Tilda Swinton and Paul Dano maybe less so from Jay Gyllenhaal as I <laughs> yeah. just shoehorn into completely the wrong review but yeah uh number three for me is okja from 2017 uh bong joon ho's great the movie's great it's an absolute treasure watch it on the biggest television that you've got access to um ideally go around paul's because his tv is probably better than yours uh paul what have you got next Uh, at uh, number two at number two for me is probably one of my favorite films of this year certainly my favorite sci-fi film of the year this is alex garland's annihilation which we talked a bit about on a a previous episode not that long ago but just an incredibly powerful um sci-fi film with some absolutely incredible visuals and some great performances from Natalie Portman and Tessa Thompson amongst others um yeah just one of the the most engaging sci-fis of the year for me I think Alex Garland is carving himself a very good niche as director um ex machina and now this and it's rumored that he actually pretty much did dread as well um but got was uncredited for it so yeah Alex Garden reinforced himself as one of the most exciting British directors working today Annihilation is an incredibly incredible accomplishment and a beautiful beautiful visual film with a last 20 minutes that is just gives you one of, the, one of the most what the fuck moments since 2001 I think for the last the last 20 minutes of that film they are superb so um yeah Annihilation is my number two so that brings me to my number two also, um, which is the Meyerowitz Stories brackets, new and selected from 2017. This is from director Noah Baumbach that you'll know from things like The Squid and the Whale and While We're Young and, and all kinds of other uh, projects as well. Um, and a guy that I think is pretty accurate to describe as like a modern auteur um, to the extent that we still use that tag. Uh, this is all about uh, a family who have been estranged from one another, at the head of which is Dustin Hoffman, this um, architectural designer slash general genius who is casting a shadow across the lives of his kids, um, one of whom is Adam Sandler and one of which is Ben Stiller. Um, and both of them, in their own ways, are trying to get out of that shadow or establish themselves and just get a bit of respect, I guess, um, alongside their sister, played by Grace Van Patten. I mean, this um, is a really good piece of work. I mean, it's kind of, I would say, up there with the handful of my favourite Noah Baumbach movies. And again, it's one of those that kind of um, transcends the fact that it's on... Netflix like it just happens to be on Netflix but it it it's because I feel like we used to sort of 
apologize for those films you know like almost <laughs> yeah. when you were talking about beasts of no nation before I, I interrupted with absolute nonsense um that like that being the first netflix film it was like ah oh, yeah but it is just a netflix film you know what i mean like it was well, almost like a, a wider a that is the wider attitude i think with this, with a number of the with a, within the hollywood establishment as well it's just like well they should be i think spielberg made a comment that they should be competing for emmys and not oscars because they're tv movies essentially and they're really not in the um no in the in the no, no, they're absolutely not. And it's just nonsense. But I mean, you'll get that from, you know, it, it, there's a generational rift, I think, here. But um, yeah, the, the, what can I say? Yeah, Merwitt's story is very funny. Um, as you'd expect from Baumbach, it's also quite dark. It's incredibly well written, like to almost to a fault. Um, there are some really good performances. I think Ben Stiller is probably the standout in this because this is absolutely his wheelhouse. And um, yeah, it, just very enjoyable. Um, I lapped it up. Paul, what have you got at the very top of uh, the list? Believe it or not, a film that you would say, you said would be surprised if it wasn't on my list. It is on my list and it's the top of my list and it's Bong Joon-ho's Okja, um, which just blew me away when I watched this. It's a technical marvel for Netflix as well. I think it came out of Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision um, HDR for the techie people among you. So it just looks incredible. Um, it's just a, a brilliantly paced, charming, a bittersweet um, sort of a- action in places, but drama, just everything. It ticks all the boxes. I just, I'd love Okja to bits, and it just, it, t- it made me cry more than once. It probably make me cry again, and it's just brilliant. And I think it's, yeah, absolutely superb film. And I won't say much more on it than that because you've covered it quite well earlier. Um, what's your number one, Pete? Um, well, talking about making you cry, Paul, my number one is a documentary. It's very dear to my heart. I've talked about it on this show a couple of times already. Uh, it's from 2017. I still feel enough people have not seen this. It's uh, Kingdom of Us. Um, this is the one that is uh, very much not an easy watch, but it tells the story of a father, particularly centred on the father of a family of eight um, and the journey through the childhood of his various children as they um, watch the... F- I'm loath to say it's just just demise because it isn't about pure demise but this is a man in their father who suffers from bipolar disorder and is at times uh, very up and um, is like leading the charge for his family in a sort of Captain America style, not Captain America, Captain Fantastic sorry, uh, Captain Fantastic style of, of sort of, you know, we're all going to get incredibly well read and we're going to do projects and we're going to outside and we're going to make stuff and like let's make a shed and come on kids and pitch in and he's got all these ideas and this creativity and this love for his family and then perfect, absolutely perfect uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll try and keep it as, as brief as I can then so we can get out of this section. But uh, yeah, he, he's got all this love for his family. That's very clear. But also his mental illness is having the effect on him that like, for example, when it's his birthday, his kids deliver to him a birthday cake. And this is all being filmed for sort of home video purposes by the kids. And this is where the, the documentary maker benefits, I guess, from, from all of that footage, uh, that sort of close proximity footage, because when they give him the cake rather than being able to celebrate his birthday and embrace his kids and his wife he is completely dead and ashen faced and he can't speak really because that is what it might be like uh, in that situation for somebody with the condition that he has so um th- and, and so many parts of it stand out for me paul but like in particular and i think i mentioned this in the original review but is the section in which one of his daughters is interviewed and she's now um a, an older teenager and she says in many ways i've come to think of as my father uh, of my father as a hero because he knew that the person who was the biggest threat to his family was himself and that person was out to cause damage and potentially death to members of his own family so he did what heroes do and he killed the villain um and it fool like it yeah it's it's i mean i don't know man without 
without going too far here, because we've got another section of the show to do, like both you and I and many people listening to this will have been touched in some way or other by mental illness and and uh, the related issues that go along with that. And I think that this is one of the most powerful pieces of work that I've ever seen that deals with reality rather than conjecture or rom- romanticism or uh, defeatism or nihilism when it comes to those things. So yeah, The Kingdom of Us is, or sorry, Kingdom of Us from 2017 is, is hugely highly recommended. Just, you know, watch with, with a little bit of caution because it is quite upsetting uh, to say the least. That is my number one, Paul. We're going to get out of this section. Hopefully, therefore, we will be back without as much drilling in the background for the Act 3, the final section of our show, which is going to be a look ahead to upcoming Netflix original films right after this. So yeah, the Netflix focus now continues where we're going to talk about some projects that excite us. And oh my word, when we looked at this, I thought there's not that many coming up. Is there? Is there? Yes, there is. There is a shit ton of films in production from Netflix at the moment. So um, yeah, they have some serious cash to burn. Um, and we're going to talk about the ones that excite us the most, starting with some probably a couple that are out late that have yet to release this year, going right through to 2019. Uh, Pete, do you want to open proceedings? Uh, yeah, although I can't promise it's going to be out this year. This is okay. safe. It's 2019, the first right. one in my list. But um, anyway, yeah, like you said, Paul, I've just got a handful, and I think you have as well, of, of the most anticipated as far as we're concerned. Now, take these ingredients, sir, and try not to get excited we've got the retired slash unretired slash retired slash unretired director steven soderbergh directing a film called high flying bird this one written by Tarrell alvin mccraney who you will maybe recognize as the writer of moonlight um ah, in okay. in the movie there are also reasons to get excited not least that um this one stars kyle mclaughlin uh zachary quinto and zazie beats all people that I think we're pretty high on. Um, what we've got in terms of details is not a release date other than 2019 for Netflix so far, but uh, the synopsis is as such. A sports agent pitches a rookie basketball client on an intriguing and controversial business opportunity during a lockout. Um yeah, I mean, if you got the writer from Moonlight and the director Steven Soderbergh and then throw in, yeah, like I say, Zazie Beats, Zachary Quinto and Karma Glocklin, I mean, you can't go too far wrong. And so as long as this isn't going to be, you know, the very end of December in 2019, that should be one to look forward to in the not too distant future. And I'm, I'm definitely on board. Paul, what else can we look forward to um, on Netflix? One you can look forward to in the very not distant, what am I talking about? The very not distant future? The near future is the word I'm looking for there. The near future uh, is Alfonso Coran's latest Roma which has got some which has had some serious critical buzz um rumored to be one of the very best films of the year so far so that i think drops in december mid-december i think on netflix so that's a big coup for them um it's apparently it could be in contention for a number of awards so they've actually dropped a, a theatrical release for this in the states i think um probably a week or so or, or it is going to be shown in a few theaters in the states a week or so before it comes out so it marks a bit of a shift in netflix's attitude towards theatrical releases as well but i think they want an Oscar um, this is rumoured to be the film that will get them one and it's supposed to be incredible so yeah very excited about that Pete so I have um, next a film called The Last Thing He Wanted which will release on Netflix in 2019 and is directed by Dee Reese. Dee Reese who was the female director of Mudbound which was another Netflix film that to be honest was on my long list but didn't make my short yeah, list but a very cra- good Netflix nearly cracked my top five but yeah very good Netflix film as well yeah 
This is from a Joan Didion novel um, adapted by Dee Reese, and it will star Anne Hathaway, Ben Affleck and Willem Dafoe, amongst others. Um, And the synopsis is a journalist quits her newspaper job and becomes an arms dealer for a covert government agency. But basically, the thing is here, Paul, I mean, I quite like Anne Hathaway as it goes, but um, Dee Reese, I think, is a director with great promise. And so, again, it's great to see somebody like that get the opportunity to just get more projects greenlit basically and and with such a a starry cast as this i mean throw in actually toby jones is in this one as well so yeah big big names um big buzz as far as i'm concerned and um i look forward to that one in in 2019 what else paul uh i'm very much excited for the christmas chronicles which is also out later this year no one expected that to be on my list do you know why there's only this this the only why the only reason i'm excited for this i know very little about this except for the fact that kurt russell is father christmas Pete, what have you got next? <laughs> <laughs> That's enough. Really. Uh, in fact, yeah. <laughs> I think I think I was made aware of this because he, Kurt Russell, was on uh, the couch with Graham Norton, and I think they showed a little clip for like early teaser clip from it or something like that. So, yeah, uh, I'm on board with Kurt Russell as Father Christmas. Um, I'll tell you what else I'm on board for, man. There's, there's a film director that you're well aware of, Paul, called J.C. Chandor, and like everything he does, is really really good. And so J.C. Chandor's next movie, as far as I understand it, is called Triple Frontier, and it will release in 2019 on the Netflix platform. This is about five friends who reunite to take down a South American drug lord. Yes, please, I'm in. Uh, yep, yeah, I, I would say I would say take my money, but like you're already taking my money as an automatic payment, so you don't need to do that. Uh, yeah, we've got Pedro Pascal, Charlie Hunnam, Ben Affleck. Um, amongst others in this one but like have you seen yeah i don't even think i've talked about it on the show uh like all is lost yes yeah so like between all is lost and the most violent year which only caught up with relatively recently and then um uh what's the one that's about the financial crisis that's really really good as well um yeah that uh, one yeah that one that was really good that with the seen. long speech about the bridge uh yeah. margin call margin yeah, call brilliant. that's it yeah margin call was great yeah. I, I just I'm, I'm i'm very much on board with jc chandor i think he's a very very talented individual and of course oscar isaac is in this one as well uh garrett headland uh, a whole bunch of good here um and again this stuff is is the netflix output that we get now i mean that's kind of incredible to well me. talking of that netflix are given two two kind of struggling up-and-comers uh an opportunity to reunite in 2019 um i don't know if anyone's heard of these guys martin scorsese and robert de niro do you know who they are heard of those guys at all yeah i mean is this going to be good or is it going to be terrible well, what's your feeling at the I, i've got a feeling this might be right this is this is oh. called the irishman it's another organized crime thriller from martin scorsese and robert de niro uh so l- let's just take a step back to think about a time when people sort of joked about netflix and you've got spielberg saying oh no that it's straight to tv stuff martin scorsese and Robert De Niro reunited for the first time in a num a large number of years in a Netflix production. That's Netflix. If they if you you can't name two heavier weights than that in the industry. Full stop. That is Netflix rolling out the big gun, big guns. And I for one am very excited. Well, um, keep the excitement rolling, man, because now we've got uh, in again 2019. I wish I could give specifics here on release dates, but. Um, this one is Velvet Buzzsaw, which seems it's a like a great title. <laughs> yeah, Velvet Buzzsaw may or may not get a theatrical release. We will see. But this one is from writer-director Dan Gilroy, who did things like um, Nightcrawler. Uh, Nightcrawler working with Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal is also in Velvet Buzzsaw, alongside uh, one of my favourite uh, actresses uh, in Tony Collette. Uh, we've also got here John Malkovich. Um, we've got... 
Uh, Zoe Ashton, who's this actress that I've like, ha- like really went on about a great deal a long time ago when uh, she she made a number of appearances, mainly in UK televisual stuff. But like, yeah, her being in this is really exciting as well. Um, and I should say something about what this actually is. Uh, big money artists and mega collectors pay a high price when art collides with commerce. That's Velvet Buzzsaw in uh, 2019. And like you say, what an awesome title. We'll, we'll see. It, it says here, horror slash thriller. Uh, called Velvet Buzzsaw. What more do you want? Paul, um, I've got one more. Have you got any more that you want to get I've to? I've got one more as well. That I might. I imagine I might be the only person in the whole world excited about this. I'm quite looking forward to the Bright sequel, Pete. There you go. I said it. I didn't hate Bright as much as a lot of other people did. I thought it was all right. And I think if they can improve on it, it, it needs some work, don't get me wrong, but I think the world they built in Bright is fantastic. Like the centaur cops and dragons flying around like modern day LA. I think that's great. And I think there's a universe here that could be really, really good. And I think a sequel could actually be quite enjoyable to Bright. So there you go. I said it. I'm the one person in the whole world looking forward to the Bright sequel. I'm I'm not even <laughs> looking forward to the last two thirds of Bright because I watched a third of it and gave up. <laughs> but maybe I will catch up with it in my dutiful pursuit of having something to say about this sequel when it comes out. Um, for me, then, the final one that I want to get to is from uh, Wash Westmoreland, who is best known for Still Alice, um, which was terrific a couple of years ago. This one is a film called Earthquake Bird, again releasing in 2019 on Netflix. A young expat living in Tokyo is suspected of murder, which uncovers a mysterious love triangle. Now, apart from the fact that Still Alice was great and this filmmaker is clearly very talented, what we've also got here in Earthquake Bird is... Um, uh, uh, one two of Alicia Vikander and Riley Keough who for a while was the basically at least as far as our show was concerned like follow Riley Keough's career and you will find all the exciting sort of A24 releases and stuff that are coming out in the future yeah. but yeah here, here we've got the two of them alongside uh, Jack Huston and a few others I mean there's no point reading out sort of the whole cast list but I think there's enough there in Earthquake Bird to indicate that this is another reason to be excited and like with we've gone basically we've touched like the tip of the iceberg with about 10 maybe there uh, of the releases that are coming up in the next probably 12 months and when we did the the um research and sort of rundown for this list we had to cut down from about a hundred different releases so yeah i mean there's loads to look forward to right paul on this on this particular absolutely and i think it's just netflix calling card isn't it it's like we are here to stay we are doing to be taken seriously and we will make they and they have and they should be taken seriously they are making very good films not tv movies actual good films in their own right and i think the industry just needs to wake up to that and accept that this is this is where it's going now and you know i don't blame people for watching more and more stuff on netflix because cinemas are full of idiots on their mobile phones um the projection is not always great the sound's not always perfect in there they're not always the most comfortable they're really expensive and you've got to sit through well i've got to sit through because i insist on getting there on time 20 minutes of adverts and trailers so with netflix you can just put it on you watch it in in the comfort of your own home without people talking over it so yeah there's a lot to be said for netflix and if, if, if cinemas are scared of them they probably should be but then up your game now, now, just just as a capper, because otherwise we are going to sound like a pair of absolute Netflix, you know, acolytes or whatever. I, I just want to throw into the end of the show this. The rating system is terrible and needs to be, yes. you know, shot in the back of the head and, and, and <laughs> dug a shallow grave sort of Buster Scruggs style. Um, 
also we could it almost goes without saying paul if people have listened to other episodes of the show before we could almost uh, or very easily do a top five worst netflix original films and we would have absolutely no trouble listing five five terrible productions that have gone out on the platform so it's not all like sunshine and roses but when the best of the best is as good as it has been on this countdown and the stuff that's upcoming is so exciting as it is and it gives great like filmmakers and great actors and actresses the chance to to do their stuff and to have an inbuilt audience i mean the very fact paul for example we talked about this before the show that the duplass brothers that we both quite like i think have got green the green light and i think three untitled netflix projects that come out in about the next year and a half i mean okay that might not be for you but that's the beauty isn't it paul if it's not for you just ignore it but it gives the people who like that stuff (laughs) yeah right exactly gives the people who are looking for that stuff the place where they know they can go and they know they can get it without like you say paul going through the whole rigmarole sometimes that is involved in going to seek out uh, and see a film at the cinema and you know with that having been said neither one of us is going to stop going to the cinema at you know any point in our lives i don't think and all being well we'll still have cinemas to go to so let's not go too far into putting absolutely everything on netflix but let's also take time to praise the stuff that's good that's there right and i think and i hope that's kind of what we've done on this episode yeah i completely agree i said i'm not going to stop going to the cinema anytime soon but if it encourages cinemas to be better at what they do and not put on um preview screenings at quarter quarter to three in the afternoon you know we have shown it (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah and, and case in point paul like after we finish recording here, I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to watch the remainder of the new Gus Van Zant movie, which to me, at least in my vicinity, completely unavailable theatrically. So, like, I have that opportunity. It's not on Netflix. It's on Amazon Prime as it goes. But, like, that opportunity is there to me because those things exist. So that's good, right? Yeah, all good. It is all good. No, stream is good. It's here to stay and it should be embraced, but also embraced at the same time as please keep going to the cinema, but just make your cinemas be better is essentially what we're saying, I think. Absolutely. Um, uh, talking of making things better, Paul, our show gets better and better, but it only does that with the love and support and dedication of people who tune in. Well, you don't tune in. There's no radio dial. It's such a stupid thing of me to say. Uh, people who click the relevant place on the internet and uh, download to their phone or, or, you know, walk around with the show and listen to it on the way to work or whatever. So, please keep doing that share it around as we always say it you know it takes a few seconds to write a review but it means an absolute massive amount to, to the both of us and to jack the producer shouldn't be forgotten um and then you know we're going to do more and more online to promote the show but please if you can help in any way with that we we would appreciate that too paul any final words for this episode uh, no, you can find us on a number of social media platforms, Strangers in the Cinema. Basically, just Google that. You will find us, Instagram, Twitter, at, at Strange, excuse me, at Stranger Cinema. Uh, that's pretty much it for this week. We will be back with a show of some form next week. What are we reviewing next week, Pete? I'm going to put you on um, the spot now. The, see the, what's out. Quite lightly, The Girl in the Spider's Web, because that's on general release at the weekend, I believe. That is, yes. And um, Fantastic Beasts apparently is out. Fantastic Beasts is, is out, uh, yeah, this week. So yeah. uh, possibly that one as well. I definitely will have seen seen it by the next show because i am now married to a person who has made that uh, non-optional so uh, <laughs> i will be seeing it but yeah uh, could, could well be that we're back with Lisbeth salander for a bit of a, a bit of a chat next yeah, week i'll be talking uh, well assuming i make it i should make it in time i've got a good hour and a bit i'll be going to see shoplifters uh, this afternoon so that's the palm door winner from this year so i'll be getting into that um you were uh, if you'd I'm have just if you'd have stayed in uh, basingstoke mate you could have seen shoplifters without paying any money though right <laughs> hey, hey on that note goodbye see you next time shut up and sit down